0: excuses are for losers. The Blind Ambition of Chad E. Foster. In this interview, we sit down with Chad E. Foster, author of Blind Ambition, for an inspiring conversation about overcoming adversity and achieving success. Imagine losing your eyesight at 21 years old and never being able to experience some of life's simple pleasures, like seeing a sunset or your loved ones. Chad knows this struggle all too well, but instead of becoming a victim, he transformed his obstacles into opportunities. He became the first blind executive to graduate from the Harvard Business School Leadership Program, built software, Silicon Valley, and that said was impossible and helped millions of people worldwide become successful, all while generating billions of dollars. In this interview, Chad shares his story and the practical strategies he teaches to improve resilience in changing circumstances. His message is clear, excuses are for losers and visionaries bounce back. Don't miss this engaging conversation with a true visionary and learn how to turn your adversity into advantage. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show where you're about to go on a wellness driven ride.
1: the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter Kristen was murdered by her ex-boyfriend it's a parent's worst nightmare how much did we really know about domestic violence back then clearly not enough now we know plenty we know domestic violence or dv can happen to anyone one in 3 women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes one in 3 I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast, it's a series of lives being saved.
0: I'm so excited to introduce our incredible guest. And while he may have a little bit of a lengthy biography, it's well-deserved and I'm going to share it because it's worth you knowing about. Chad E. Foster is a husband, a father, an avid snow skier, and that is not a joke, who is not just competing with his condition, he is competing with the world's most successful people. Chad believes he is not successful in spite of being blind, but rather he is successful because he's blind. He embraced his problem and turned it into a solution. Can you imagine going blind as a teenager? Then when most people were preparing for the adventure of adult life, he was watching the world he grew up in fade to black but that didn't stop him from becoming the first blind person to graduate from the Harvard Business School Leadership Program and climbing the corporate ladder as a successful finance and sales executive. Throughout his career, his financial strategies and decisions have resulted in the creation of countless jobs, billions of dollars in revenue, industry-leading growth, and best-in-class margins. He worked at Red Hat, one of the most innovative tech companies and the world's largest open source software company, recently purchased by IBM for $34 billion. With determination, ambition, and drive, he created what Oracle said would be impossible. He gave millions of people the ability to earn a living by becoming the first to create customer relationship software for the visually impaired. With speaking, invites from London to Beijing, and the Atlanta Opera Commissioning, an opera inspired by his life story. Chad inspires people to overcome their own blind spots. Please help me welcome Chad Foster. Hi, Chad.
2: (laughs) Hey, April. How are you?
0: I'm great. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Thank you so much for being here.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So I was able to read a little bit of your biography, but that doesn't even, you know, hit so much of the markers that you have experienced in life, you know, on this journey. So would you like to share with the audience today just a little bit about, you know, where you came from? Let's start from a little more of the beginnings.
2: Sure. Yeah, growing up, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. Which was a fairly small town that we lived in in Halls in um, in Knoxville. And growing up, lived a relatively normal life. You know, Uh, I guess you would call it that. I could I could see okay at that time; hadn't gone blind yet. And I was an active little kid, like 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 most little boys. So I was always on the run, always playing sports. I enjoyed, you know, playing soccer and playing basketball. Just like. A lot of kids in my neighborhood. And, you know, things started to change a little bit, though, when my parents started noticing that I had problems seeing in really dimly lit areas. And so just over three years old, they took me to Duke University Medical Center. And it was there where the people at Duke diagnosed me with what they thought was retinitis pigmentosa, more commonly known as RP. And so they They told my parents it was highly likely that at some point I could lose my eyesight. They didn't know for sure if that would happen or when it might happen, but it was definitely a probability. And so they sent my parents home with that grim news, and they also told them that they should probably sign me up for a special school for the blind. But instead, my parents decided that they were going to put me in in soccer um, instead at, at four or five years old. So that was that was sort of the beginning of it, just sort of having this knowledge that at some point I could go blind, I would go blind. And so that was kind of in the back of my head for quite some time. But I never really, I don't know, it, it didn't really resonate with me for quite some time because I didn't have any other symptoms. Everything was okay. I could, I could play sports, I could drive a car. I did occasionally get hurt because of my eyesight limitations, just sort of learning. The boundaries of what I could and couldn't see, whether that be at dusk you know, or at night bumping into something, the way that I would find out that I couldn't see something is by running into it. And it's like all of us in our lives, you know, metaphorically speaking, we don't know what we can't see when we can't see it. All of us have these metaphorical blind spots, and I was learning my physical blind spots by running into things. In fact, I spent so much time at the hospital that... The people there at the hospital questioned me and my parents in separate rooms because we were there so often they thought they were beating me. But the the truth is I was just learning the limitations of my eyesight as it continued to fade.
3: Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a -a three-times-a-week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to StoicismPod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.
0: Right. And you were just being a kid and a kid just, you know, is, is bouncing all over the place because they're, you know, active. And so you were a normal, active child and so oh. I, I couldn't, Im- well, I don't ever want to say I couldn't imagine. I've, I've been through my own adversities. When I read your book, and I'll point out to the audience that it's in your background, uh, it's called Blind Ambition. Incredible book, by the way. And um, unfortunately, I, I have like an hour left, Chad, to get through it. And as I do so many interviews, um, do a lot of research, but I was very close, your your work has been one of the most enjoyable. And so when I go on, on long walks, um, I listen to it on Audible and and it was so good. I, I love your work. I love how you have humor, you're very descriptive. And so there's also pieces of relation, believe it or not, between you know your story and my story. I too grew hmm. up with something. Um, I'm not blind, but I have an autoimmune disease and that's systemic lupus. So mm. I, you know, at a very, very young age, you have doctors telling you, well, you can't do this, can't do that. And then of course you're living with it physically, you know, and you have to show up at the ER because you have bruises or you're bleeding. And so I experienced that. And I thought it was wonderful mm. when you said, well, it went into soccer. And because that was the sport of choosing for me too. And then until I could no longer because there were too many bruises and and too much. So, yeah. but you know, you, you're very yeah. descriptive when you talk about, um, you know, these were my experiences. I was able to do soccer because it was in the daytime. It was very lit up. It was outdoors. It was something that I could still see yeah. as opposed to an indoor sport like basketball where the lighting isn't so well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and or baseball that's often played at night or football Ooh. under the bright lights. We I I could play those all those sports during the day, but in artificial lighting, it, it became hard for me. For whatever reason, my eyes just never worked that well at tracking the object at a high rate of speed within those artificial lighting environments, whether that be in a basketball arena or at night under the under the lights of a football. Uh, in a football stadium or baseball field, it just didn't, didn't work as well. And uh, so I had to be a little more selective. I wish I'd known then what I know now I've currently, you know, I'm into, and I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, but I'm wish I'd known that skiing could, could be done without being able to see, or something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was available. And it wasn't when I, when I was that young, I don't think jujitsu had made it to the United States yet from Brazil, but that's something I, I do today and really enjoy and don't even really, need to be able to see to do that, which is, uh, which is really helpful.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's just by feel and touch. And, um, although it's extraordinary, the skiing aspect that, that to me is wild. <laughs> I watched your video and I was like, wow, fascinating because, um, I, if, although I grew up in Colorado, Chad, I oh, am you not, did. Yes. I'm not an avid skier. I'm so sorry to say <laughs>
3: Oh no. oh no. Don't worry. I'll
2: make up for it for for both of us. Thank you. <laughs> I love it.
0: I allow that. Yes, yeah, so you can. I'll do I'll hike all day long. I'll I'm a mountain yeah. girl. So I love I love outdoors. Um and so I'll do that for you. How's that? We'll do a good exchange. Beautiful because I'm
2: not much of a hiker. It takes a little <laughs> takes really good foot placement I think, especially on certain trails. I haven't done that that much and skiing there, there's a little more leeway. The the slopes are I mean you can make a case i guess either way but for whatever reason I've been drawn to skiing and, and not yet to hiking so I'll let well, you Well yeah you I mean it's
0: mansion. it's more you know it's smooth it, it's a, it's a coast you know it's a flat ground where you don't have to worry about you know as much of the uh extra terrain going on there. So um mm-hmm. yes I love I loved your your childhood story and I, I really enjoy the way that your parents went about it you know you discussed that they didn't put you in in separate schools you know that that were specific to children that needed special needs or more attention they really wanted you to experience okay. as much of life you know in the fullest capacity as as long as you had all of your senses
2: that's right yeah they were they were very careful to not coddle me And to give me enough freedom and opportunity to experience what I could in life while I could in life. Obviously, they knew that, you know, based on what the doctors were saying, I probably wouldn't be able to drive forever. And, you know, I could drive then. And so reluctantly, they were concerned, obviously, as I was learning the limitations of my eyesight and as my sight was was fading what do we do? And it's hard to kind of put yourself in that situation, imagining I have two kids trying to imagine whether or not to let a child go out and drive when they're battling eyesight that is, is uh, just it's getting worse and worse over time. Things are dimming. And, and so the, the courage that they had to do that and give me that opportunity, but then also the foresight they had to not coddle me throughout my life I think you know my parents if you asked them you know if, if they were, were to have a real honest moment, they were probably harder on me than they were on my brother mm. who could see fine. Mm. He didn't have any visual impairment and the reason is I think they did that because they knew that life was going to be harder for me. meaning yeah. they held me to a little bit higher standard because they knew that I needed something extra to get through life because it wasn't going to be as easy.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, Yeah. Just to use a computer as an example, you know, after I went blind, I had to learn how to write code to engineer the software just to use the computer. And now that I travel with, you know, a guide dog, I travel literally all over the world by myself with a guide dog. That's not the easiest thing to do. And neither was learning how to write code to engineer software without being able to see my computer monitor. But because they had instilled this work ethic in me, that they held me to a higher standard. I held myself to a higher standard. And because of that, when I need to put in the extra work, whether that's, you know, to engineer my software or to get across the country or globe or whatever I need to do at work, you know, whether that's, you know, learning how to write and publish a book or give a keynote presentation or any of the things that I do now, I don't shy away from the work. And so that's one of the things that I think has really helped me is I am not afraid of work and I'm not afraid of taking action. And that's a big part of why I'm here today.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. And of trying new things. So there, like you said, there's so many things that stand up that have really built you to where you are today. And, you know, with the support you have received over all of the years, beginning with your parents and yep. allowing you to, to seek out opportunities and to try new things and to give you the space and place for that. And you know, that you never stopped, you know, you, you could have said, no, I'm not up for driving. I'm not even going to, you know, take the risk. And yet you still did until you couldn't. And then, you know, you came to a point where you said, yeah, this isn't, I don't feel this is safe for myself or for anyone else. So, you know, at least you had the opportunity, at least you tried it and you, you took that, um, that risk for yourself. And then you know, moving on through life, you've had this immense amount of support mm-hmm. and part of the, the areas of your story that I really enjoyed on such, you know, you, were, you, you met at such a human level. You were such You were very vulnerable in sharing your experience, you know, when you've had sight and then it's gone. And so, you know, the difference, you know, you know what there, what there could be and what now there is not. And you have to begin relying on others and how that's not easy, especially when you're a prideful young man, you know, and you <laughs> don't right want that. To. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: that was a, that was a, a big pill to swallow, right? Yeah. Very big pill. You go from being in, independent and hard charging to, wait a minute, how am I even going to walk around? Uh, it's hard to be hard charging when you can't even walk around safely. So it was a very humbling experience for sure. and um, yeah, relying on being forced to rely on other people. and in a lot of ways, it's actually served me well in the long run because it's helped me learn how to lead with my strengths um, and and rely on other people to help me fill in my gaps, you know, on my either here at home or in the corporate world or whatever the case may be, instead of trying to do everything myself and being so prideful and trying to really get good at things I stink at, things I'm not good at, like, you know, formatting a document, for example, it's obvious now that I'm blind, right? I'm not the best person to make a document look beautiful. Um, (laughs) And so my blindness has forced me to rely on other people to help me augment some of my, my weaknesses. And that's been a really good thing for me, but at the time going through that, especially at that age where I wasn't nearly as mature and and able to accept sort of the inevitable and, and really think through how it, it could benefit me. If you had told me, you know, this is gonna help you at that time, <laughs> probably wouldn't have gone over so well. I was not in the frame of mind to think that this was a good thing. It was it was challenging.
0: Yeah. It yeah, of course. It would be for anyone. And so you know, that's why. There were so many moments that I found really enjoyable about your story is because you really expressed the emotions that you were experiencing, the frustration, and, you know, what it was like in such a detailed manner. And you even went to this very deep depression a couple of times, as would anyone, how human of you, you know, and, you know, turning yeah. to go down into that pity side of, of being human, right? Yeah. When you feel like, you know, what am I going to do now? And, and I don't know yeah. what to do and I don't want to have to rely. And, and so would you mind Chad going a little bit into what it was like um, with your experience of, you know, thinking that you might have to go and move back into your parents' house? Because I feel like there was a couple pivotal moments you and maybe i'll just let you explain but you know i think one of those was when you know your parents you know moved into this other house or built had the house built i can't recall but there was an extra space (laughs) and you were like "Uh -uh, uh-uh i'm not doing this i'm gonna find any other way to to be
2: it was motivating i'm not gonna lie i'm in college and my buddies are there and yeah there are a couple of things that happened around Mm -hmm. that time one is i'm i'm at I'm at college at the University of Tennessee. And at this point, I'd had to get a medical withdrawal from my major. I was studying to go into the pre-medical field because I wanted to help other people. But then after going blind, I wasn't even sure how I was going to help myself. You know, so I was really, I was depressed. I felt like a victim. I was uh you know, I had all this pity for myself and kind of down in the dumps and I handled it in some pretty non-productive ways in college just partying and having a good time thinking I could I could do that for the rest of my life and um, mm. my cousin came to visit from Houston and it was my older cousin he's about 26 years old at the time mark and we're in the driveway we went out you know we went to the football game there in Knoxville went and saw a University of Tennessee football game went out afterwards and had a bite to eat and we get back to the house that I'm living in at the time with my buddies and my, but my uh, Mark, my cousin calls me out in the driveway and he calls me in the driveway and he's like, Hey man, you know, those guys in there. I said, yeah. He's like, most of those guys are going to end up being losers. Mm. If you keep hanging around those guys, you're going to be a loser too. And it's one thing, you know, when, you know, I don't know, your dad says something or, you know, your brother says something and they they had told me similar things before in the past, but really respected Mark and the fact that he did that when he did that. It just it landed with me and I didn't push a button and change things, but it started putting me on a different path. And it really, it, you know, is the it was the, the straight talk that I needed at, at that time. And then, yeah, my parents at the same time, they're building a new house that they're moving into. You know, we li- would all lived in this smaller house there in Halls for I don't know 20 something years and then they were building this new house two or three miles from from the old house and i go over there and look at it and yeah they've got the entire basement laid out you could tell they, they'd built sort of a new this living area where a person could just live putting in you know rough ends for a kitchen and bedroom and big living area and they didn't really say it at that time but i knew what they were doing they, they and, you know, since then, I've confirmed with them, we've had the honest conversation. They were building that basement just in case the world got too tough for their mm-hmm. poor disabled son. Yeah. And I started thinking of that basement as the loser basement. And I swore that I'd never spend a day in that basement as long as I lived. It was incredibly motivating. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I wanted something beyond that for myself, you know, my, my dreams were a lot bigger than the walls of that basement could handle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Chad, you're, you're a parent now and I'm a parent as well. And I I feel like it's easier now that we are right. We can put our, our, our parent hats on and we can have a little <laughs> bit more of an understanding of why our parents did what they did for us. Um, yeah you know it's it's interesting the the burdens they have to bear and my my mother my doctor i was diagnosed at 15 finally but i shouldn't say mm. finally but it was more of an answer right you you have at yeah. least an answer to why things are happening the way that they are
3: and they sense.
0: they told my mom that i i wouldn't survive to see the age of 30 and you know mm. i i'm well past that now but <laughs> she didn't tell me until I was I don't know, maybe 32, 33 years old. But you know, having wow. to hold on to that, you know, for for that long as a parent is amazing and my heavy. mom has been there, you know, just like your parents have been there for you in so many ways. You know, they not not that they want to coddle, but yet they're they're they have this awareness, right, where they want to be protective of you as much yeah. as possible. And like you said, they were probably harder on me because they knew how harsh the world was going to be for me. And so they're preparing yeah. you for the what ifs um, or they, these this is indefinitely going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, as a parent, you, you know, they, they do things that they feel is the best in their best interest and, you know, coming to be an adult, it makes a little bit more sense. Um,
2: Especially as a parent, you know, I look back and think, gosh, as a parent, I'd much rather take the path that I've taken than have to deal with the decisions that they had to deal with. mm. It's a heck of a lot easier being the protagonist, being the person going blind. Because I, I try to put myself in their shoes and yeah. imagine my kids going blind and watching helplessly Yep, and trying to prevent them from harming themselves or someone else and making sure that, you know, what if they, you know, what if they're not happy? What if, you know, they don't, what if they never get out of the rut? They never get out of that victim mindset chances are they're not going to most people it's easy to stay stuck in that mindset it consumes a lot of people who don't have a significant disability who didn't go blind and yeah you know we've got depression rates are spiking throughout you know the world right now I mean, you know, people who don't have any issues whatsoever and so trying to put myself in their situation and your mom's situation and trying to be there and be a, you know, the support mechanism for your kids, knowing the potential reality and and not really being able to do a damn thing about it is just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect for our parents and what they went through and what they had to endure because it's like I said, it's a lot easier being on this end. I'd much rather be blind than see my kids have to deal with it any day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't know about about you, Chad, but I, you know, I have three daughters, and I feel like one of the biggest lessons I have learned as a parent um, is that you can you lead by example first and foremost right and so that in and of itself mm-hmm. is helping them have the tools that they'll need when they come against adversities in life and also that it's it's impossible to try to maintain a control you know with your children um and understanding that you're never going to have total control to to protect and mm-hmm. that's okay because yeah. everybody's on our own journey and we have yeah. to experience whatever it is. I, I have this firm belief that we, you know, our souls are on their own journey. And mm-hmm. we go through these experiences and these trials and tribulations in order to learn from them, but most importantly, grow from them. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like this is now turning into wisdom. And so what do we do with that wisdom? And that's the choice and the gift that we have.
2: You're absolutely right. Um, I think of my situation for me now, having learned what I've learned and being able to help people with what I've learned, whether that's through the book or, or through keynote presentations that I give or even coaching. I started coaching recently um, and got, just got certified as an integral coach. But a blindness for me now isn't a burden for me. It's it's now I realize it's this beautiful gift that came disguised in some really ugly wrapping paper. Mm. And so I'm, I wonder how many of your listeners have some beautiful gifts right in front of them, disguised in ugly wrapping paper. If they could only open their hearts and their minds to receive those gifts and, and open them and share them with the world, because that's where the real, beauty comes in, is being able to take something that has been difficult, a journey, an experience, whatever, and navigating that situation and taking the lessons, the learnings from that and distilling it for other people and opening up to others and sharing it with other people. Because then all of a sudden, you know, I I didn't just go blind for me. I'm now helping people with what I've learned, which in a really kind of interesting way, makes going blind worth it because I'm now giving it more value. Mm. I didn't go blind and just deal with my own stuff. I'm now helping all kinds of people around the world with what I've learned. And so I'm not just carrying that trauma and that struggle for me. I'm, I'm carrying it, but I'm helping other people with it and helping them see their own lives more clearly, which is profoundly rewarding and fulfilling. And like I said, when you can look at your situation and feel like, okay, you know what? It's challenging, but it's actually worth it. It's, yeah. a, it's a far cry from where I was at 21 years old when I was in college, and it was just poor me, you know? Because that's yeah. all I could think of back then was poor me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can relate with that greatly where there's... You know, getting older is a beautiful thing, isn't it, Chad?
2: <laughs> your BC alternative, I'll tell you that.
0: <laughs> it does. You know, you just have this this different perspective, you know, and and it just keeps getting better and better. and and I love you have this cool little saying that you'd use now. I lost my vision to give you yours. And you know that's exactly what you've just been describing is now you are, sharing your stories. And it's within those stories that I think, you know, we really give that relational piece to, to help others feel, you know, human right alongside you and that community aspect.
2: Yeah. And that, that took some time, you know, Uh, honestly, you mentioned earlier in the call about the vulnerability of me sharing, I should, I should say I was not a vulnerable sharing type of person <laughs> 10 years ago, that was not me at all. Um, in fact, it's, yeah. it's been very recent that that happened. And, and part of that is, you know, the experience that I had when I was, when I gave my first talk, I was elected to speak at my graduation when I went to Harvard
3: mm-hmm. and that's the
2: first time I've ever really opened up in that kind of way. And I saw how powerfully it could help other people. And since then, you know, I got, I got the book, deal started working on that with harper collins and i was encouraged by the editors and everything hey the more you can be open and vulnerable the more you can connect with people and it was really uncomfortable with me thinking that the words that i'm putting down on paper are going to end up on shelves all over the world but i i kind of you know as i'm prone to do got outside of my comfort zone with that and i found out you know the I guess the stigma that I had attached to opening up wasn't as bad as I'd made it out to be. And it's, it's kind of, it's consistent with my, my main message in the book. And I think, you know, on stage and it's, we all become our stories. And a lot of times if we're not intentional about the stories that we tell ourselves, our brains are happy to make up really bad stories. Yeah. And the, the same's true for this. I had made up this story about sharing and being vulnerable of what could happen And it turns out that all those bad stories that I'd been telling myself about what could happen hasn't really panned out. None of those have come to fruition. What has come to fruition is is that by opening up and sharing in that kind of way, I've connected with and helped a tremendous amount of people. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've given those experiences that I've opened up and shared about new meaning. And I've, I've attached new purpose to those experiences and to my life and, that really is, you know, the, the intersection of our trauma and our purpose and our passion and our profession. That really is, I mean, that's, that's the sweet spot. It's what you know, Bill George, who I'd studied under at Harvard business school, he's a executive fellow there, former president and CEO of Medtronic. He's, you know, he's had me, uh, we've done a Skydeck podcast together. He's featured me in his book. And so I can't claim, you know, that, um, I came up with this. This is all in his leadership framework called True North. Uh, but yeah. he helped me discover this when I was learning there at Harvard. A lot of people think you know Harvard Business School is all about case studies and spreadsheets and numbers, and and there there is that. But there's more than that. You know, great leaders go beyond the numbers, go beyond the business, and get into the humanity right. of the business, the humanity of leading. And that's one thing that Bill taught me very well. And it was his class that really inspired me to think differently about using what he would call my crucible and use that to help other people. And as I said, that Mm. that turned into me giving the talk there at at, at HBS. And then later on, you know, kind of all over the world, becoming a, a keynote speaker and then the book, but his leadership framework, true North is all about that. How can you mine your life for experiences, trials and tribulations that connect with you at a visceral level that you can, then uh, pivot into what you do on a day-to-day basis so that you're not working a job. You're not, you know, doing a hobby because of, you know, it's, it's transactional. It's, it's much deeper, right? It's much more meaningful when you can connect with something at that deep emotional level. It, it, it no longer is a transaction. It's, it's the reason for being and the reason for doing, and that's incredibly powerful.
0: It is. And, uh, I want to I want really make sure that the audience, I want to go back on that, where you're sharing your story mm-hmm. and those vulnerable aspects of you. Um, I think every speaker kind of falls into that at one point or another, that fear of being vulnerable and sharing your story. It's not easy. I'm right there with you. I'm um, yep. part of me doing this show and going live is is my my stepping stool to that, you know, Mm -hmm. little bits and pieces of me come out when I have interviews with others. And at the same time, I use it as you know, this, this is my, uh, you know, my, my interviewees are are the people who are in between me and my full story. Right. So it's my Mm -hmm. buffer, so to speak. (laughs) It's my, it's my safe zone. And, uh, you know, and, and as I progress and the next things come through, yes, it, you know, it's, it's speaking on stages and I've had a lot of invites and so um, I've been on a couple, but it comes out slowly. And, but at the same time, like you said, those fears of, I think that this is going to happen and they never come to fruition. In fact, it's the opposite where it's incredibly empowering to the listeners that that you realize the power of it. And so I, I like to share every now and again when I do have um, somebody on here that, that is a speaker, which is many, but they actually talk about that experience of it's within those stories and sharing yourself that we help not only change ourselves within, but, you know, that's part Mm -hmm. of changing others.
2: Well, it it makes us relatable. Who can relate to someone who acts like they've never had any any issues, any traumas, any tribulations? Every human on the planet, if they've lived on this planet we call Earth that spins around this sun that we all participate in and, and benefit from, Everybody's dealing with something. Not everybody goes through what I went through and not everybody goes through what you went through, but everybody's dealing with something. Everybody has experienced this shared journey of the human experience. And so pretending that we've got everything together and nothing ever goes wrong, you know as much as people may want to think that's true when they look on social media and see people's book of faces and Instagram posts and everything else that's not reality. The reality is life is messy. No, it's not healthy. Yeah. The the reality is life is messy and it's hard. And there there are good days and there are bad days. And you're going to have times when you feel like a million bucks and you're going to have times when you feel like you need a refund. You know what I mean? But the important thing is, is, you know, you continue to pick yourself up, you know, and, and look forward, but being able to share those experiences, those difficult moments with people in that moment of vulnerability and, and being thoughtful about how you do it. Obviously, you can't share everything all the time, but it's it's just, it's about creating the connection and the relatability and showing that we are all dealing with things. And, and um, you know, that, that's just part of the journey that that all of us are on. I, I just, I feel like if people are trying to act like they don't have any issues going on, Nothing ever goes wrong for them. How relatable is that in the human experience?
0: No, it's not. You're you're absolutely correct. So wonderful. Chad, we're going to go into a a commercial. And um, when we come back, I want to hear more about and and share with the audience about your experience with the dogs and going into that a little bit. So stay tuned when we come back.
4: Hello, everyone. I am Kim Jacobs, the host of The Kim Jacobs Show, and you all know who's right here with me, Dr. Les Brown. How are you, Dr. Brown? I'm blessed and highly favored.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the time you want to give yourself a competitive edge. If you got a message, you have some knowledge or experience, a story, or If you want to do something adventurous and exciting with your life that can increase your credibility, expose you to millions of people, I'm encouraging you to have your own talk show. I used to have a talk show. That one talk show catapulted me to another level. Now there are more people watching the Internet, as you are aware, than television. Come on, somebody. That's right. Kim Jacobs, she trained people on how to have their own talk show. She will train you how to do that. And now with me working, partnering with her, now you have the combination of an audience, expansive audience. We have over 4 million people in all of our platforms and the coaching you need to grow your business, to grow your multi-level marketing organization to draw more attention to yourself in this noisy economy. Go ahead, Kim.
4: So in the training that I do, Les, I actually do a six-week training. It's one hour per week. And each week, I meet with the individuals one-on-one. We go through and we talk about all of the things that's necessary for a show to become a reality. We go from how to actually identify your focus area what's going to be your ideal customer that's going to be tuning in. We'll talk about how to get guests, how to get sponsorship, how to go about getting your lighting, your branding, and your banners, and everything that you need to know. And guess what, Les? They own their own content at the end of the day.
5: And that's exciting. Now, if you're ready to to create a shift in your business and in your life and increase your cash flow, I want you to go to kimjacobsconsulting.com. It's right there on the screen kymjacobsconsulting.com. You know, people say opportunity knocks on every door. No. Opportunity stands by silently waiting for you to recognize it. So I want you to recognize that this is a time for you. This is an incredible time to have your own talk show. It establishes a level of credibility. Yes. And by being exposed to people on a regular basis, It allows you to strategically begin to impact and attract your audience. She can take you in a place in yourself that you can't go by yourself. So go to Kim Jacobs, consulting.com. That's Kim Jacobs, Consulting.com. Did I say Kim Jacobs Consulting.com? Yes, you did. Very good. Make sure you go there and sign up for the coaching, and we're looking forward to working with you. You have something special. You have greatness within you. That's my story, and that's Kim's story, and we're sticking to it. Bye for now.
4: Bye
0: <laughs> So, welcome back, and uh, Chad. Kim Jacobs and her coach is Les Brown, but she was my coach. And so I I just, I love sharing about her. And speaking of great coaches, you are now coaching as well. So, but before we jump into that, um, I want to go back into your story, your book a little bit more, if that's okay. Whoever watches this is going to get an incredible book review and be really (laughs) excited to read it because... I think I just get really jazzed about it because I truly do. It's 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 one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I hope none of my other uh, people I have on here are listening to that because um, <laughs> most of the people on here have written a book. So I can't yeah. read them all, but all right. I really very much enjoy it. And so Thank you. um, you're welcome. I'm, I'm getting excited about so much of, you know, the dog. And I also, as I was thinking, um, your restaurant experience and your experience with dating and women and how that went for you, because you, you know, you're a fit guy. You're a tall guy. You look more like, uh, you know, maybe a, an an injured veteran or something, right? You know, you you yeah. just look like this, you know, typical. Or I shouldn't even say typical. You're it's not even typical, right? But you, you're fit. You're well. You're you're tall. You're a good-looking white guy, and so. You have a dog now, right? Because you had yeah. to go through that training, and yeah. that is like this magnet to women when you go out and about.
2: It, it definitely has been, yeah. My my friends in college actually wanted to change my first dog's name from Miles to Magnet because everywhere we went out, we were constantly getting approached, and you know, for <laughs> a couple of years, I probably didn't buy my own drinks when we when we went out. My, my friends would get so mad at, you know, they're like, Hey, give me the dog. Let me walk around with the dog. And I just have a joke with them, Like, Hey, look, you know, the, the dog is a magnet, but you have a mouth, use it right. When they come over, you can talk, but it was a, it was a great icebreaker, you know, effectively that's what it boils down to. I think maybe people, there were some people out there, maybe women in particular, you know, don't want to appear too aggressive by by approaching a man. And so it was a nice disarming way to have, mm-hmm that conversation yeah. without coming across like, Oh, I'm coming on too hard or, or whatever. And so it was a nice, um, icebreaker. And, um, and that, that definitely worked out. I had one guy tell me when I was getting my guide dog at leader dogs for the blind. I don't remember if I put this in the book. Maybe I did. You can tell me cause you read it more recently than I did. Um, <laughs> he comes up to me and he's like, this is, Things are going to be different for you when you get home, son. And I was like, he's a Southern guy, right? Things are going to be different from you when you get home, son. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, let me ask you something. You ever had anybody ask to pet your cane? I said no. <laughs> he's like, yeah, your social life's about to get a lot better. And sure enough, you know, I got home and definitely took off from there. And it's it just, yeah, you know, it was different because yeah, you know, before before I got the guide dog, even beyond just sort of that ice breaking part of it. You know, and I was going blind. I was I didn't really use a cane at the time because I didn't I was I didn't want to admit to me and to other people that I had a visual problem. So I was trying to walk around and pretend to be somebody that I wasn't. I was trying to pretend that I could see just fine, even though my eyesight was fading fast. And that was a really difficult thing. You know, I would bump into people at times because of the situation, whether it was walking into a really dark room from the sunshine and my eyes had a hard time dilating and adjusting or it was, you know, in a dark area, I couldn't see that well there. And sometimes I would bump into people. And I guess they just thought I was high or blind or whatever. But what they didn't know, and how do you say this in a quick conversation? Oh, I have I'm I'm going blind. You can't just throw that in as you bump into somebody mm-hmm. in a building or on the sidewalk. So mm-hmm. people would just kind of assume that I was an, I was a jerk or I, I wasn't paying attention or I was uncoordinated or something like that. But then when I got my dog and I come back. It was like this amazing symbol of, he was like my ambassador of, oh, this guy's got something going on. Okay. So beyond just the obvious cuteness of having one of the, the world's most intelligent and beautiful dogs, you know, he was a really great ambassador because it signaled to everybody that I had a visual problem or some sort of problem. A lot of times they didn't know whether it was visual or not because they'd look at me like you said, and they're like yeah, you don't look blind. I don't know what's going on. They just assumed that, I don't know, I'm not sure. You know, so, Sometimes people would ask me if I was training the dog or you know, mm-hmm. maybe I'm you know, using the dog for canine. I actually had something happen funny in college. One time I went to a, a party and I knock on the door to go to a party and they thought I was the police, right? And they're like, no, the yep. police is here. I'm like, no, it's just, I'm a blind dude with a German shepherd. <laughs> but I've had some, some pretty interesting experiences as you can imagine, but it was a it was definitely a nice change up from what had been going on before in the preceding year or two where people thought i was rude or incompetent or something like that people could actually see okay there's something much more benign going on here this guy's dealing with a real serious problem and it opened things up you know people were a lot nicer a lot more hospitable and and it uh it did improve my my social life
0: yeah absolutely you have some really fun stories i want to make sure everybody knows this and you have to read the book and you, you know, you talked a little bit about your, your struggles with learning, um, to, you know, to be with this animal and you're right. They're one of the most beautiful, most intelligent animals that we have. And, and that's why they do what they do. That's why police and, um, I'm ex law enforcement. So I know about that, right. They're trained in such a way for different purposes and Mm -hmm. for your purpose. And you have to, you know, you can't see, right. You can't see what other people are doing around your pet. And you have a a part where somebody gave him food that he's not supposed to have. And he he's on this specific diet because he has to, you know, you know, be fit in a certain way. And while I was working
2: at my desk. Yeah. Yeah. I had my, cause I always work with earphones in like, like I'm wearing here because my computer talks to me. Right. And so I wear earphones so that it's not talking out of the computer speaker so that it can be quiet and discreet and while I'm working away listening to my computer talk to me somebody snuck in behind me and fed my dog.
0: Yeah. And then there was there was horrible repercussions.
2: Oh, it that. was catastrophic. Yeah, catastrophic. There was about a a $500 veterinary bill not to mention the cleanup on aisle three, which was not not a, a very fun thing to do. I don't think I won employee of the month that that, that particular month um, with <laughs> what, what miles had done there. but it wasn't really my fault, but still I, I was accountable, right? It was my dog I had to yeah. do had to figure it out.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, then that brings me back to a moment, Chad. And I thought it was so hilarious when you first were interacting with a dog and getting used to it and learning that this is this is, you know, my companion that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And when it came to to the dog duty side, you're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize this part where yeah. I have to actually clean up after them. <laughs> yeah,
2: That was not in the brochure. I told him, I'm like, hey, what what is this for? They hand me a bag. We're going out to take the dog. And they hand me a bag from this little uh, spool. They have a spool where you, you tear one off and go out to take the dogs to park. They call it, you know, when the dogs relieve themselves, it's called parking. And they hand me a bag. I'm like, what's this for? And they're like, well, who do you think's going to clean up your dog for your dog? like, Oh, well, I don't remember hearing about this before I signed the application. <laughs> but, you know, you think about it, obviously, I'm, you know, like you said in the beginning, I, I don't believe in excuses. And, uh, yeah, is it? always easy to do that? No, but it is always necessary. So it has to be done. So regardless of where I'm at or what's going on, I clean up after my dog 100% of the time. Right. Full stop.
0: And well, let's, let's stay in this time period of when you were in the training because there's the school, right? So yep. so everybody goes to the school where you're trained with the animal, and in, it's a it's a week or two that you have time with them, and you're learning about them. They're learning you, and you're with other people, and you had this kind of profound experience of being around other people that were blind, and most of them, you know, didn't have the luxury of having sight you know, at any point in their life, they were born this way. And so you came to this point where you, you know, you really met them at a more human level and understanding and it changed your perception.
2: Totally. It, it, it changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, It was deeply uh, profound for, for me. And I think part of it, you know, I'd never really been around other people who were disabled because I hadn't been disabled that long i again i grew up and i played sports and maybe i was in denial you know i was trying to trying to pretend like everything was going to be fine but then i go to get this dog and i'm meeting people there as you said many of them were born blind some of them were deaf and blind you know because they just they had multiple disabilities some of them were on dialysis because they had diabetes and so It's one thing when you just meet someone on the street and you just you hear how rough they have it. But I was with some of these people for as much as 26 days. So we're there together. And I'm seeing the challenges that they face, whether it's going to dialysis weekly or Mm. having to communicate through an interpreter who would then sign into the palms of their hands so that they can communicate. And imagine if you can for a second, it's one thing to be blind. These girls there were deaf and blind. And they're mm. literally grabbing this dog by the leash by the harness and walking down the sidewalk and crossing busy streets. Like it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. And here I am whining like a baby because I don't I can't see after you know 23 years. Mm. Right. And it just it really struck a nerve with me that I, I was making excuses and it can always be worse. Yeah. And you know, you hear the, you hear these platitudes that were told, you see somebody you see somebody that doesn't have shoes and there's somebody who doesn't have feet. That platitude came to reality right in front of me. And there was no denying it. It, it changed the way that I looked at everything. I walked into that experience at Leader Dogs for the Blind in Rochester Hills, Michigan, That June, I I walked on campus as a victim, a victim of my blindness. I left with a totally new attitude on my life. That was my tipping point in how I viewed my life. I left that with an understanding of what happiness is and and what it isn't. And a lot of people think that happiness is a feeling. Well, it's not. It's not a feeling and it's not an emotion. It is a decision that you make every day when you get up. You either choose how you're going to look at your life or you allow random circumstances to affect your happiness. Your happiness and your success are your decisions. They're up to each of us to make that decision. And happiness in particular gets back to, okay, the choice, the choice to be happy, the choice to have a perspective, the choice to be anchored in gratitude. Do we anchor ourselves in gratitude or do we anchor ourselves in what we lack? Do we think about the scarcity or do we think about the abundance? I'd walked in there thinking about the scarcity of my life, what I was lacking, and I left thinking about the abundance of my life. The fact that I'd been on the planet for 23 years, I'd had a bunch of years of eyesight, wasn't perfect, but I had many years of eyesight, all of my hearing, Mm. all of my kidney function, all of my, my cognitive faculties. some mm. of these people had mental impairments too. And you now you stop and think about it. How many of us got to sign up for what we were given? You know, none of us were, were asked. We either, you know, we were given certain traits, certain characteristics. We didn't get to sign up for any of it. I didn't get to sign up for going blind. I didn't get to sign up for being born in the United States either. I didn't get to sign up for being born at the dawn of the information age where a lot of things that were not previously possible were possible for someone who couldn't see. And so if I'm going to be mindful of what I don't have, I need to be mindful of the things that I do have that all of us very naturally take for granted, like the fact that you know here in the U.S., we live in one of the the most abundant countries on the planet, where work and opportunities for fulfillment and um, enjoyment are plentiful. And so I started looking at things just in a completely different way. And in fact, it 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 affected me in such a way at home now with our kids. Every night we do our thankfulness, we call it. It's, it's thankfulness. It's a gratitude exercise. Every single night we go around and everybody has to name three things that they're thankful for. Mm-hmm. There can't be any duplicates. Nobody can copy anybody else. You can echo them, but you can't, that can't be <laughs> yours. You have to come up with your own unique things that you're thankful for because. What I want to do is rewire my children's brains not Mm. to think about what they don't have. I want them to think about what they do have and what they're probably taking for granted because all of us fall into that trap. We all take things for granted. But this little reframing exercise helps put gratitude at the front of the equation because it's not happiness that creates gratitude for us. It's gratitude that leads to happiness.
0: Mm it is it is gratitude that leads to happiness i agree with that and sometimes it takes those those experiences to see and think and understand that i i go to that moment uh chad because you know growing up you know my mom would would say well let's let's put you into these groups you know lupus support groups Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i was i was young And everybody else in the room was in their, you know, 30s or over, you know, 50s. And I I didn't fit in. And I felt like such an outcast or like I didn't belong. I could not relate. And everybody there was... Complaining and using their disease, disease as is excuse to now I can't do this or this and this in life and and life is over with you know where I was yeah. young and I'm like what I have my whole life ahead of me yeah. like I can't think and that that's way toxic, I don't right? want to be that it is so toxic and I didn't yeah. but you know you and I maybe had this advantage right because it started in in a younger years where we yep. were able to to think a little bit differently where you have the energy of a young person and you you're just naturally designed you know despite some other things that are going on to to keep pursuing and to enjoy and to explore and to live and you know i yeah. too had some of those profound moments where you know i saw somebody else that struggled so much more than me and then you realize it's like you know it could be much worse, and because of that, I'm gonna live my life to the fullest. And so part of that was why I yeah. went into law enforcement. I mean, a lot of it was that denial aspect, right? You know, and you know, I don't want my disease to define me, and so I'm gonna show up in in any way proving otherwise. Yeah,
2: exactly. I've been there. Love so. that. Yeah, we we definitely have a common thread there. Um, And I think you're right. You know, had it happened to me later on in life, you know, I was 20 something years old when it happened to me and I was feeling sorry for myself. But if I was going to feel sorry for the rest of my life, it's like another 50 something years of sorry.
3: That's a lot of
2: sorry. You know, (laughs) I I can't I can't be sorry for that long. I'm way too upbeat and positive. And no way I I felt sorry for a while, but 50 something years. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I can't do that. Yeah. But when you, you pause and you think about it, I mean, nobody's in in our life is getting a do-over. Nobody. You're not getting a do-over. I'm not getting a do-over. So even if you want to live in that world, the poor me world, the victim world, the, oh, gosh, things didn't go my way world, how's that going to work out for you? If you want to stay there and you want to live there and you... You get to the end of your life, let's say you make it to your golden years, and you look back on your life, and you didn't get what you wanted out of your life. Even though you might have some good excuses, some legitimate reasons to fail, how's it going to feel if you still don't get what you want out of your life? Your life's over. It's done. You're at the end of your life, and all you've done is feel bad for yourself and comfort yourself Mm -hmm. in the moment with some excuses, but you didn't get what you wanted out of your life. Your goals and your dreams fell to the wayside. I can't live with that. I can't live with that. I am going to you know, use that same energy and determination instead of making excuses for myself, but instead of using it to comfort me, I'm going to use it to push myself, to hold myself to a, a higher standard and you know, that that's something that I feel very fortunate to have learned at an early age. And, uh, I'm not sure that I, I would have learned that without going blind. Obviously, you know, going blind forced me to improve yeah. my perspective, my, my effort, my focus and my determination. I needed yeah. something extra to help me bounce back from all of that adversity. And, you know, fortunately I was able to find that, but I don't know that I would have had to cultivate that same level of drive. Had I not been presented such tremendous obstacles.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and you do continue to do that and and show up. You've done some incredible things throughout life. Um, worked with, you know, and tell me what you think, Chad. But hmm. I feel like the more that we push ourselves. And the more that we, you know, expand ourselves and open up those opportunities, it's also opening up opportunities for the connections that we're making. And so you have been fortunate enough and and I continue to do the same thing because here I am with you speaking to you in this room, in this space. Uh, but it's those connections, those people that, I mean, really, that is what I have found to be one of the most grateful aspects of my life is the connections that I'm making the people and who have similar thoughts and similar ideas and want to be those game changers.
2: Totally agree. If you play it safe in your life, you never get out of your comfort zone. Then chances are you're, you're never going to get to what you want out of life. You have to take a few chances. Everybody has to take a few chances. You don't have to start big and huge but you know even little things that were intimidating you know I could sit and name off to you a thousand things that seemed huge at the time but it was this chain reaction of events like I go back to gosh I mean I wanted to get my mom recognized my mom literally read every single one of my business books to audio for me when I was in college and but she read incredible. every one me. like it, it is incredible. And I wanted to get her some recognition. So I called the university of Tennessee. Next thing I know, I get presented with this accomplished alumni award. Me and my mom go there. We both get these awards. Okay. That's great. I, 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 it was uncomfortable for me calling them and advocating at first. Then my boss comes to me and says, Hey, you know, you got this article about you and you've helped the company here, bring in over $45 billion in contracts what can we do for you? And most people, you know, most of the time I would say something like I'll send me to a Dale Carnegie class or whatever. I'm like, you know what? Send me to Harvard. Right. I mm-hmm. asked him to send me to Harvard. I was really intimidated when I said that. And he said, okay, he got the CEO to sign off on it. And then it's like, I'm worried. Okay. What if I don't get accepted? I might not get accepted. Then I'm going to look like an idiot. Well, I did get accepted. The next thing I know I'm, I meet Bill George, um, he inspires me to, to look into using my story. And then you know, I'm in a meeting with um, Red Hat's CEO, Jim Whitehurst. And I'm a senior director there. I don't have a great relationship with Jim. We've talked once or twice. But I go to the CEO and I ask him, hey, how'd you get your book published? I had the you know the courage to do that. And I was really nervous. Like, how'd you get your book published? You're a busy guy. He ends up putting me in touch with his literary agent. Next thing I know, I've got yep. Jim Whitehurst, literary agent, helping me get a book deal with HarperCollins. It's all these little yep. micro events that we think are, oh, this is nothing. You know, We talk ourselves out of so much opportunity in our lives. We talk ourselves out of it without even taking what would seem to be on the face of it a big risk. But in reality, it's not a big risk. The real risk is what we're going to miss out on if we don't start creating those chain reactions. I look at that and what that has led to in my life. And now, you know, speaking and helping all the people that I'm helping based upon that chain reaction of events and all these little micro decisions that seem so insignificant at the time that really add up over the long arc of time to create the pathways that we have in front of us. So I think it's really important to, to understand. What is driving the decision making? Don't always think you have to be comfortable with decisions. It's a lot of times I like to do what I call the future you exercise. Mm. And that is what what can future you live with? What decision can future you live with? Can you live with going after it and failing? Or would you rather just live your life and not know what could have been possible? For me, I've always said I would much rather fail in pursuit of my goals than to live my life not knowing how wildly successful I could have been. I can't live with the not knowing. And that that counter fear, the fear of regret, the fear of not knowing, that's been the fear that I've always let power me through all of these uncomfortable things like you know, learning how to downhill ski on a black diamond or learning how to fight a, a black belt in jujitsu or what whatever the case may be, taking on these things that seem impossible or at a minimum super scary on the surface, what what can future Chad live with?
0: hmm Yeah. I um I'm actually now I want to say so many things about that, but now my brain went to, uh, to jujitsu and, you know, I really love that. And I was surprised that you hadn't gone into that earlier because, you know, the way that I think of it, you know, with a, with a law enforcement background is, um, you know, when you go to the ground, when the fight goes to the ground, that's the fight of your life. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, having, being blind, and thinking about all the what ifs and the and you know what could happen and being able to protect yourself or protect your family yeah. you know wanting yeah. to have that training and so i think it's incredible that you're you're doing that now you're receiving it and um yeah. how spectacular and how you know that that really on a on a physical level and you know when we when we learn those, it's it's not just the physical that we're learning though there's the mental, spiritual, emotional, all of those pieces that really go within those trainings.
2: Thank you for saying that. Um, I can tell that you've you've done it. Um, the fact that you say that. And, and before I, I, I talk about that, I do want to say I do I train with the Marietta Police Department. It's actually mandatory for all Marietta Police Department recruits to take Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and they all train at my academy here in Atlanta. So it is profoundly useful
3: yeah.
2: um, in the real world. You know, uh, my professor studies body cam footage and has a curriculum that he has created specific to law enforcement for that very reason. And so I, I get to roll with you know, a lot of the guys from the, the police department there. And uh, needless to say, you know, they don't, they don't take it very lightly. It is what is keeping them, from yeah. pulling out their weapon, a lot of times when they're on the street. And so it's it's a very it's a very serious thing, but it's it's profoundly useful. But we, you you mentioned something about the spiritual and the emotional, and not just the physical, and, and there's the mental too. Not many people think about that. You know, the first time somebody in jiu-jitsu gets you in this inescapable chokehold, and you realize there's no way out. Or you think there's no way out. Panic kicks in. At least it did for me. And this sense of terror falls on you like a like a like a rain cloud, right? This rain cloud of terror just soaks on top of you. And then your adrenaline kicks in. Your heart rate goes up. Your breathing gets out of control. The next thing you know, you're trying to power your way out of the situation. And sometimes you do, and and sometimes you don't. But I'll tell you what happens over the course of time. The more you train, the more you learn, instead of panicking, you learn to bring your heart rate down and not panic and settle into the terror. And when you can settle into the terror clearly and think clearly, you can start to look for a way out. And a lot of times you'll find that there's actually, you know, that inescapable chokehold has a few cracks in it. There actually might be a way out of that chokehold. And how helpful is that, whether you're on a you know, on the mat fighting somebody, you're on the street fighting somebody, or it's a stressful work issue, or maybe mm-hmm. a scary personal issue. What if we could all, instead of just panicking, we could calm ourselves, instinctively bring our heart rate down, Yep. And settle into the terror and just start looking for a way out. A lot of times we'll find a way out of the situation. So that for me has been a really significant learning and being able to embrace that terror that that comes with something like jujitsu. Something and it's 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 very transferable. And what you notice, the interesting thing is whether it's skiing or jujitsu or you know, whatever is scary to you, but the more regularly you move towards the fear, the more you notice the edges Mm -hmm. of your comfort zone expanding. Yeah. And that's because you're expanding. Yep. You're growing, you're evolving into a deeper person. And those things that used to seem really scary, aren't so scary anymore. And that's, that's where growth happens on the edge of our comfort zone. So it's a, It's a fun sport. It's a beautiful martial art, but there's a lot more to it than just the physical or the mental, as as you pointed out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I strongly encourage everyone to, to experience that and learn that because it is, it, it, in, in, it, it, it's such a a good teaching on so many levels. Like I also want to point out, yes, you're you're exactly right. Lowering that heart rate. That was one of the biggest lessons that um, I learned to understand, Chad, because, you know, in law enforcement, when you're in this high stress situation and we fall to the level of our training, right? We don't rise to the level of our courage. <laughs> and so that's why we train over and over and over and over. And you know, but it's yeah. also it's not just about that training, but it's about the training with your breath and lowering that heart because you're already fumbling and your motor skills are all jacked up, you know. <laughs> and yeah. so, totally. you know, in order to perform, you have to lower your heart rate, period. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, if your purpose is to respond effectively. Um, to save the life of yourself and others, then um, that is, that is what's needed. And so breathwork has been such a huge part and it goes for everyone. And that's, you know, part of, I love that I learned that, you know, during that time of my life in that field, Mm -hmm. because it has carried me Um, throughout life to aid in, in everything, you know, when I was going through traumatic experiences in life where I had to slow down and allow my, my heart rate to, to decrease, you know, so I, I could just be a better person and, and allow those things to happen in life. And so whether you're in traffic or you're at the job or, (laughs) you know, whatever. Giving a presentation,
2: job interview, whatever.
0: Yeah. And yes, that is exactly where growth is and happens is when you expand yourself to do the things that scare you. A lot of people are saying that, right? Do something that scares you every day or, you know, just go out of that comfort zone.
2: And oh, I was terrified of public speaking. Yeah. Terrified. And now I'm a professional speaker. And you can't even speak, Chad. How I know. Well, terrified? I didn't have notes. I I don't speak. I have zero notes. I get up, I have a one hour presentation in my head. I have zero notes. Right. Never so have. it's
0: like, am I going to come out? Am I going to remember what what I want to say? Am I yeah. going to be able yeah. to concentrate on the things that add value? Yeah. Or, oh, of yep. course.
2: It's it's tightrope walking without a net. And I was terrified when I first started. But now I, it's like I've I realized that if I really want to help people, I have to move towards it. And, yeah. and so yeah. I moved towards it yeah. and now I've given, you know, I don't know, 500 keynotes, um, all over and that's what I do, you know, professionally now. So move towards the fear. Like that is where growth happens. If you move towards the fear, not mm-hmm. away from it.
0: Yeah. Well, Chad, oh, speak, it,
2: speaking of, speaking of just one, one more final thing I, I want to yeah, mention. Please. I'm competing in my first BJJ tournament here in Atlanta on May 20th, and I'm a little uneasy about it. But true to form, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna see what happens. And it's in the it's called the Tap Cancer Out fundraiser. So if people are interested, um, you know, it, it, if you search for my name or Borges BJJ B O R G E S BJJ, and I'm gonna get a link up on my my web It's on my social media but I'm trying to help people out, trying to fight for people who are in the fight for their lives with cancer. And so it's the tap cancer out Atlanta BJJ open on May 20th, really excited to to try and help out for a really worthy cause, trying to to bring some funding and some availability to researchers who are trying to do something with this, this awful disease that's, that's affecting so many people.
0: Yeah. So I have it scrolling on the bottom. So if people want to research that also, Your um, website, it's www.chadefoster.com. That's C-H-A-D-E-F-O-S-T-E-R.com. So I want to make sure everybody knows how to find you there. Um, Look up the Tap tap Cancer Out fundraiser, and that will also be on your website. Yes?
2: Yeah. um, The the link's probably going to be up next week. The web developer's working on it right now. It's going to go into the collaboration section of, of my website.
0: Chad, tell me what what drew you to want to go for this cause?
2: Well, like many people, I've had people in my life who have been affected by cancer. And uh, I wanted to to do something to try and give back. I thought, you know, with my story, maybe it's a little unique and interesting that a blind guy thinks it's a good idea to get on the mat with people who can see and fight (laughs) and compete. So I'm hoping that, you know, the uniqueness of the situation combined with The worthiness of the cause can can draw people to help us all collectively come together and and try and bring some resources to to this really worthy cause that's affecting so many people.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Thank you. And you know, you're you're such a giving person in so many ways. You know, all the things that you're doing and sharing, I I feel so honored and grateful to have you on our platform at the Wellness Driven Life Show. So thank, thank you. you so much, Chad. And It's been a um, pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Your your book is incredible. Uh, the links are going to be in the description below, so I want to let the audience who's watching the replay to check out that. So Chad's uh, website is there, and other links will be in the description below. Also, if you have questions, leave them in the comment section. We still get back to those, so be sure to do that. And I want to ask you, Chad, is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience today?
2: Mm, The one final parting thought I'll leave with the audience is make sure that you tell yourself the right stories in your life, because every single person in this world, including you, will become the stories that you tell yourself. So please, please, please make sure that you choose your stories about you very carefully.
0: Mm. Thank you so much, Chad. We appreciate your time here. Thank you. And goodbye, everyone, for now. We'll see you later.